Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. A few years ago, I went on record as saying the best movie producer currently operating out of Hollywood was Kevin Feige, the Marvel Comics mogul. Feige's track record was impressive, mega hit after mega hit, ever since he launched the famous Marvel Cinematic Universe with the first Iron Man all those years ago. So why was I so keen back then, and why am I less so now? So the upgrade is complete. Tell you what, throw a little hot rod red in there. Good luck keeping up. This wasn't my first rodeo with Marvel Comics. Back in my early 20s, I became obsessed with Stan Lee's Empire, Spider-Man, the X-Men, the Amazing Hulk, Thor, and so on. They didn't seem like comic books. They were funny, they didn't take the genre too seriously, and they were very well drawn and produced. Sound familiar? I'm Tony Stark. I build neat stuff. I got a great girl and occasionally save the world. So why can't I sleep? But then one day I woke up and the spell was broken. Marvel Comics started looking rather predictable and repetitive, and anyway, I had other interests now. As John LaRoche, the obsessive collector in the film adaptation, put it, done with fish. If you'd really loved something, wouldn't a little bit of it linger? Evidently, LaRoche's finishes were downright and absolute. He just moved on. I sometimes wished I could do the same. And I suspect, under assault from endless new Marvel product and cinemas and streaming on Disney+, Plus, I'm getting a repeat performance. The ridiculously over-the-top The Avengers Infinity War films pretty much marked the end of my enthusiasm. Done with fish. Thanos did exactly what he said he was going to do. He wiped out 50% of all living creatures. But there's no escaping Marvel just yet. This week sees their latest superhero, Shang-Chi, and his origin story, The Legend of the Ten Rings. The one distinction is that this one is clearly targeting the gigantic Chinese market. Yo, what up, y'all? It's your boy Clev coming at you live on the bus. I actually did take a little bit of martial arts as a youth, so I'm going to try and grade this fight as we're going. Meanwhile, across the way, a genre with an even longer history than the superhero movie. Ghost stories have been concocted by Shakespeare and Dickens, Emily Bronte and Henry James, and the Nighthouse is very much part of that tradition. All houses wherein men have lived and died are haunted houses. Through the open doors... The harmless phantoms on their errands glide. 
Also this week, the story behind the discovery of a painting by one of the greatest artists who ever lived. The lost Leonardo is almost too good to be true, and thereby hangs the tale. I'll talk to the director, Andreas Kofert, later in the show. But first, Kung Fu, Marvel style, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I told my men they wouldn't be able to kill you if they tried. Glad I was right. At the height of their powers, Marvel Comics films could make you forget for two hours that you'd been watching, essentially, a blown-up kids' movie. The A-list casts, even the backup players, included people like Sir Anthony Hopkins, Sir Ben Kingsley, Tilda Swinton and Robert Redford. The talented directors, often drawn from award-winning independent films. The intricate plots and snappy dialogue, all combined to give the illusion you were watching something grown up. Just as his men were tying me up for my execution, I launched into a performance of my Macbeth. Whence is that knocking wake, Duncan, with thy knocking? I wish thou could. They couldn't get enough of it. I've been doing weekly gigs for lads ever since. For me, the bubble burst when the Avengers movie Infinity War destroyed half the universe and then the next movie Endgame brought it back. Not how implausible it was, but how ridiculously big it was. Too much, I thought. And now the rose-tinted glasses are off, you start to notice how thin many of the Marvel characters are becoming. Noble, funny, evil. That's about it. Which brings us to Shang-Chi. Throughout my life, the Ten Rings gave our family power. If you want them to be yours one day, you have to show me you are strong enough to carry them. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings owes much of its storyline to Chinese myths and legends, I believe, particularly those filtered through the colourful martial arts movies of China, Hong Kong and Korea. There's a lot of use of phrases like the legend tells us, mystical powers and you have to fulfil your destiny. Son, it's time for you to take your place by my side. The Ten Rings of the title have two meanings. It's the name of an ancient criminal organisation out to conquer the world or something. And they're also actual rings of power worn around the arms of an indestructible warrior called Wen Wu, played by Hong Kong superstar Tony Leung. He's just a criminal who murders people. Be careful how you speak to me, boy. But this is the story of Wen Wu's good son, Shang-Chi, who had no interest in going into Dad's family business and he ran away to San Francisco, changed his name to Sean and got a menial job at a fancy hotel. But his friend Katie gets a surprise when she and Sean catch a bus one day. You have the wrong guy. Does he look like he can fight? Come on, bro. Look, 
Katie is played by comedy actress Awkwafina, who became one of the essential ingredients in any American film aimed at a Chinese market. She's shone in films like Ocean's 8 and Crazy Rich Asians, and she's one of the best things in Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. Hey, can we get real for a second? We've been friends for ten years. I know that you don't like to talk about your life, but a guy with a freaking machete for an arm just chopped our butts in half. It transpires that Wen Wu has sent his goons to drag Shang-Chi home to join him in his nefarious schemes. Shang-Chi defeats them temporarily and then with Katie in tow dashes off to find his fellow warrior sister in Macau with Dad's goons in hot pursuit. I think there's been some sort of confusion. I like your spike face. They're my cousin. Usually you gotta fight your way to Central Ridge, but a viral star like you, find the line, babe. I'm not here to fight anybody. Okay, I'm looking for my sister, Shushalin. Never heard of her. Around about now, my iron grasp on the plot started to loosen somewhat. There is a bit more to it than Dad regularly capturing Shang-Chi and Shang equally regularly escaping. How did you find me? I always know where my children are. Me against the world, I got my back against the wall. Seems like a nice fella. There's also mystical stuff about portals to the land of the dead, magic villages and rival dragons with names like the Dweller in Darkness and the Great Protector. And there's the always welcome appearance of Michelle Yeoh in her usual role of kick-ass auntie. You are a product of all who came before you. The legacy of your family. You are your mother. And whether you like it or not... You are also your father. But the secret of the classic Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, also starring Michelle, and the earlier, better Marvel movies, is that they took some trouble to win audiences over. They didn't simply assume we were there already. Of course, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings doesn't need my support. It's already picked up rave reviews, particularly from Asian audiences who relish the sight of a big Hollywood blockbuster with almost entirely Chinese or Chinese-American credentials. Shang? Yeah. You change your name from Shang to Sean? Yeah, I don't... I wonder, yeah. how, I wonder how your father found okay, you. I was 15 years old, right? What is what is your name change logic? You go into hiding okay. and your name is Michael, you go on change it to Michael. That's, that's not what happened. It's essentially a trad East Asian martial arts movie with dollops of Marvel Comics icing, cameo appearances and callbacks to previous plot points, including the notorious Mandarin. But it did nothing to reheat the Marvel souffle for me. Once again, too big and not really enough. I'm slightly embarrassed to confess I can't usually get into horror films and ghost stories. Either they're too stupid, an endless string of things going bump in the dark, or they're too damn effective and I end up with sleepless nights. No fun either way. But I can't deny that when they're done well, they do the business. You were right. There is nothing. 
Nothing is after you. You're safe now. And when I say done well, I think what I mean is the bare minimum of mystical hocus-pocus, haunted video recorders, random monsters from another dimension, and explanations involving ancient Indian burial grounds. It certainly helps when a film stars someone like Rebecca Hall. They all look a little bit like me, but not quite. Stop it. Nothing you find is going to help you. I think you knew my husband. There's something you should know. What was he building? Rebecca comes from English stage royalty and her undoubted skills come in handy in the night house where she's in virtually every scene. She plays Beth, a teacher who was recently and unexpectedly widowed when her husband Owen killed himself. My husband took the boat out on the lake. He took a, a handgun that I didn't even know that we owned and... Why did he do it? Beth and Owen's life appeared to be blissfully happy. They were even doing up their new house by the lake. Owen gave no warning or explanation of any problems, certainly not in his farewell note. You said you were safe? Safe from what? You were right. Nothing's after you. What could that possibly mean? Beth obsessively pours over old home movies. Maybe there are clues that she's been missing. And then over here we have, uh, da -da -da, the husband. You know that we're paying people to do that, right? You don't have to do it all yourself. Owen... There are strange, unexpected noises in Beth's house, particularly at night. And there's something else. Beth has started walking in her sleep. The spooky thing being that Owen used to do that too, shortly before his death. I didn't think we had secrets. Everybody has secrets. Could Owen have been leading some sort of secret life? Beth's friends urge her to let it go. Remember the best things about her marriage, except that some secrets will remain hidden. But Beth can't do that, particularly when she stumbles on another house across the lake, a house very like hers, but strangely different. It's our house. But backwards. What the hell was he doing? The Night House is a smart haunted house mystery that keeps its own secrets until well into the film. Star Rebecca Hall is terrific in it, taking us with her as she tries to make sense of events that seem to defy a rational explanation. You know well, Beth. The cunningly devised script delivers well-earned chills and it's to the credit of the night house that it plays scrupulously fair. It avoids the usual infuriating moment in so many lesser horror films where a patched-up explanation insults the intelligence of the most credulous of audiences. The sense of something moving to and fro.
No, this is good scary fun of the kind that Victorian masters like M.R. James, Edgar Allan Poe and Robert Louis Stevenson used to cook up. And even if, like me, you're not usually a ghost story fan, The Nighthouse is well worth chasing up. Say for a while. It's one of the least likely stories in the art world, the discovery of a lost painting by one of the greatest artists who ever lived at a New Orleans auction house. It was bought for peanuts, and within less than 20 years, its value increased beyond all imaginings. Salvatore Mundi, by none other than Leonardo da Vinci, was sold for the highest price ever commanded at an auction, $450 million. But that's just the start of the story told in a new documentary by Danish director Andreas Kofod. The film is called The Lost Leonardo, and Andreas joins us on the line from Copenhagen. Hi, Andreas, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How big a deal is it to discover any painting by Leonardo da Vinci? Well, it's a very big deal. There are only 15 known Leonardo da Vinci paintings in the world right now, and the last time a new painting by him was discovered is more than a hundred years ago. So it's something that is completely rare. It's something that an art historian or an art dealer can only dream about finding. Why are there so few? I mean, did they get lost or did he not complete that many, Leonardo? He was busy with many other things. He was a very busy scientist as well. When he painted, he would sometimes spend years on just one painting. And he would also have a workshop with several pupils and students who would uh, carry out different paintings on their own. And then, of course, there are a few that are lost. But as far as I have understood, it's just a few. Now, this painting is called Salvatore Mundi, the saviour of the world. Had anybody actually heard of it before it came up? Yeah, it's been like a myth almost because <laughs> several of Leonardo's students have painted the same motif called Salvatore Mundi. So, so we know of 20, 30 different versions, different copies. But the, the big question was, did Leonardo himself ever paint an original of this motif? That has been discussed for many years between art historians. This painting was actually known in the 20th century when it was a part of the Cook collection. But the challenge was that it had been overpainted before that. So it didn't really look like a Leonardo. It looked like something else. So when the people who found it in 2005 in New Orleans, uh, they got it to New York, they cleaned it, and then they could see that there were some fantastic details underneath. I need to know why he bought it in the first place, because it sounds a bit of a mess when uh, Alexander Parrish found the painting in New Orleans. That's right, but his profession is actually to find uh, undiscovered masterpieces. So I think he, he takes some chances. I mean, he, he didn't see it in real life before he bought it, so he just took a chance and paid $1,100 and, and then... There was a jackpot. But before that, they needed to get somebody in who was going to restore it. And they brought in Diane Modestini, who seems to be quite a major character in this story. Exactly. She, was a, she is a world-famous restorer. And she got the painting in and showed it to her husband, who was also a very famous restorer. He passed away 
a little after this and she started making the restoration and spent four years with the painting and created almost like a bubble around herself and the painting and got this very special relation with the painting. Mm. There was some idea that it might have been from the school of Leonardo or one of his pupils, but she suddenly started to get an idea that it was by Leonardo himself. I mean, how do you authenticate a a Leonardo painting? It's not just up to one person to authenticate a a painting. It's something that takes years. Normally, it's something that involves a number of scholars, a number of examinations of the painting. And in this case, it happened a little fast. The National Gallery in London, they were planning for a big Leonardo da Vinci exhibition in 2011. And they heard of this painting and the director saw it in New York. And then they invited it for further inspection at the National Gallery in in London. And they invited five scholars to look at it. And the, the atmosphere was positive. These different scholars discussed it back and forth, but they never really gave a formal opinion. But anyway, the National Gallery decided to label it as an autograph Da Vinci. And they were completely convinced that it was by Da Vinci. An autograph Leonardo means he did it all. He didn't just do bits of it and hand it to his pupils. This is all his own work sort of thing. Exactly. But then later on, this whole process of authentication was criticised heavily by other Leonardo scholars and Mm. other art historians who said, well, they should have waited before giving it this label. It should have been like an open discussion for years And then at some point, they might have reached a consensus among all the scholars that this was actually a da Vinci. Now, I need to ask here, Andreas, when did you become involved in this? When did you first find out about this story? Well, it was actually some months after it was sold at Christie's. I got involved in the spring 2018, and I heard about the story, and I I mean, it was new to me because uh, I don't have a particular interest in the art world. I make documentary films about all different kinds of things. And for me, the story was new, but it was intriguing in so many ways and had so many layers. I felt it was definitely worthwhile pursuing this idea. And I noticed that the basic question kept shifting because initially you're asking, is it authentic? And after a while, you're starting to think, how dodgy is the entire art world? Everybody seems to have vested interests, don't they? Exactly. In a way, the whole authenticity question becomes irrelevant because it's more about everything that happens around the painting more than the painting itself. You see how dealers and buyers are interested in art because they can use it in a certain way. They can make money of it. They can hide money by investing in art. One can even buy art as a trophy, as a tool, as a geopolitical tool to obtain power, as you see with Mohammed bin Salman, the the Saudi prince, who ends up being the owner of it. He has probably bought it as his own Mona Lisa that he can use to rebrand Saudi Arabia as a more cultural nation. So it, it, it has a lot of potential, a small old damaged painting like this. I found that the story of the auction in which the Saudi crown prince bought it was fascinating because that was nothing like the figure that they thought it was going to go for. They had a kind of a target figure of a lot of money, over $100 million, but it just kept going up. It seems like there were at least two bidders who were ready to pay a lot of money. I mean, it's very simple. When there are two bidders at an auction who really want this object, then the price goes up, especially if they have unlimited uh, resources. 
there was definitely a lot of interest in this object. And I think it's because it's, it's Leonardo. There are so few in the world. Yeah, it has huge potential to own a Da Vinci as you can see with the Mona Lisa and, and, and other Da Vinci's. One point that you bring up in the film is the fact that truth becomes less and less important to these people. It's, it's in fact more important for them that it be worth a lot of money than whether it actually is an authentic Leonardo or not. I mean, nobody seems to have any interest in finding out at the end. That's true. The, the, the challenge is that it's, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to determine whether he painted it or somebody in his circle painted it. So in a way, the big institutions here, they kind of benefit from this doubt and, and they, they just go on and uh, authenticate it because it, they have more interest in it being authentic than it not being authentic. In, in a way, the whole curiosity for examining it further, it, mm. it disappears because it's not really of their interest. The question is also whether it's at all possible to get closer to the truth. I found it interesting, the, uh, some of the people that you talked to, including scholars, and they became very personally involved, didn't they? Once you take a position, it's very hard to get them to move from it. It's very competitive, uh, this world of Leonardo scholars. And in a way, when you stick your neck out and share your opinion on a specific piece of art, it's a kind of risky business because if it turns out you're wrong, you will be accused of not being a, a good scholar. It takes a lot of guts, actually, to speak out about these things, it, especially when you're kind of missing real examinations and real proof, when it's just your opinion and what you see with your eye that you share. It's risky business. And, and I experienced that with several of, of the scholars that I wanted to approach that they didn't really want to touch on this subject because they know it's, it's very controversial. There was another Leonardo exhibition in Paris shortly after the one in London that kicked this whole thing off. And they weren't particularly keen on putting this painting up as, a, as an authentic Leonardo. I still actually don't know exactly what happened behind the, the closed doors at the Louvre because one of my sources within the Louvre told me that they had always believed it to be a Leonardo since they saw it the first time in, in 2010, I believe. But leading up to this exhibition, there were so many rumors. Did they want to include it? Did the Saudi prince want to include it or not? As far as we understood, the Saudi prince insisted on the painting being shown next to Mona Lisa in the same room. And Louvre rejected that because, first of all, it, it was impossible for them logistically to have these two world-famous paintings in the same room, simply because of the, the crowd would be too big. They didn't want to move the Mona Lisa because it's so fragile. But I also think there was an element of saying, well, the Salvatore Mundi is not equal to the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa is something special. Apparently, they rejected this, this demand from the Saudi prince. What is happening now probably is that he will exhibit the painting in his own museum in Saudi Arabia at some point, because then he can control everything around it. He is apparently also a bit paranoid around all the criticism that has faced this painting. If it turns out that he bought the world's most expensive painting and it turns out not to be authentic, then he will look like a fool. And he's, he's not interested in that. I think that one question that only gets asked once or twice in the film also, Andreas, is 
is it any good? Aside from, you know, how valuable it is and the fact that even a bad painting by Leonardo, where such a thing possible, would still be worth the money that you pay for it. But one of the critics was sort of saying, it's not even a good painting. I mean, there's something rather wobbly about one of the fingers, isn't there? And, yeah, and- yeah. It's, I mean, it's not up to me to judge. I'm, I'm not a paintings expert at all, and I've never seen it real life. So for me, it's difficult to judge. Many of the people I talked to who saw it in real life, they say it has a certain presence and a certain power, and it's very fascinating when you stand in front of it. So I I hope that I one day can see it with my own eyes. I think it has the same sort of power as anybody worth $450 million, I think. As soon as one of those people walks into the room, immediately you're drawn to them. Yeah, it also poses an interesting question. How does it affect you as a viewer when you're told this is a long-lost masterpiece by Da Vinci, the best artist who ever lived, and he painted Christ in this painting? Yeah, how does it affect you as a viewer? I think you become more engaged and more seduced by it when you have that knowledge compared to if if you just see it without knowing anything about it. So it's also a question of how vulnerable are we to be manipulated a bit about yeah many things in the world and the stories that we are told, how, how do they affect us? I think we have a, t- a tendency to, to really wanting to believe in, in the fairy tale. Another question that you ask at the end of the film, Andreas, is just the idea of what is the point of art? Is the point of art to be taken by somebody wealthy and hidden in a bank and never shown to anyone? Or does great art belong to the world? Exactly. And and what we have seen the past many years is that extremely wealthy people, they invest in art and they basically stuck it away and never show it to anybody. Uh, and for me, it's a huge loss for humanity that we can't even uh, share and enjoy these fantastic paintings. I don't know how to deal with that issue because when you own something, you can decide where to put it. But I, I would wish that these extremely wealthy people, that they would decide to share their beautiful objects more with, with the world. At the end of all this, what do you think? Do you think it's a fake or not? I have decided to remain open because I think there's still more to come with this story. There's, there will still be more, more examinations and, and, and more new angles on it. And I think it's more uh, interesting to let the viewer become the detective in this story than imposing my own point of view. That's Andreas Kofer, the director of the new documentary feature, The Lost Leonardo, currently showing in cinemas. It's an absolutely fascinating story of art, hidden treasure, politics and greed. And as Andreas says, the story of Salvatore Mundi is far from over. Unlike this show, of course. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.